I can't decide if my beer choices are made through smart decisions or just pure luck. I guess it's a mixture of both, really. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure, a podcast looking at unfamiliar places across the world and aspects of travelling you may never have thought of. I'm your host, the Barefoot Backpacker, a middle-aged Enby with a passion for offbeat travel, history, culture and the whys behind travel itself. So join with me as we venture Beyond the Brochure. Hello. Yes, it's only been a week since my last podcast. Don't get excited. This isn't going to be a regular thing for the most new series. As I mentioned later, it's just because I had a lot of content, so decided to split it out over two episodes, like I did for London last year, which was three episodes. Sometimes when I draw up a podcast, I find I'll have a lot more content than I expected, and writing it is a breeze. Sometimes that does not happen, as you know. Anyway, housekeeping... November's been a weird month for me. My bank card disintegrated while I was in London on the last evening before my return home. And by disintegrated, what I mean is the chip on it, which today I found out is called an EMV chip, fell off while I was trying to pay for something, I may add. Beer, obviously. Fortunately, I had enough cash on me at the time. And double fortunately, I'd topped up my Oyster card, my the London travel card, only half an hour before. So I wasn't in trouble getting back to the hotel, which was on the opposite side of London. You know, it's, a, it's an hour from Harrow to Barking. Also, fortunately, past me had booked business class for my flight back from London to Glasgow. So that took care of food on the Tuesday evening. And then, even more fortunately, an old friend from my Birmingham days, Tracy, was working in Glasgow and had ended up having to stay an extra night because of train issues. So we met up on the Wednesday and had food and drink on her expense account. All of this makes me sound quite posh. I am not posh. It was nice to meet up with Tracy again. It'd been quite a few years since we'd last met, I think. She's moved around the country as much as I have in that time, albeit mainly because of her work rather than on a whim like me. Fortunately, my replacement bank card arrived on the following Tuesday, which was almost exactly the right amount of time I needed to have eaten everything in my freezer. I still had some cash I could have bought stuff with, but it had, you know, had it come a couple of days later, it might have been a bit edgy. No, I don't have any paying apps on my phone. This is because I like to separate out my stuff, so if I lose one thing, it doesn't affect everything. So I might have had to have looked into it at some point. Or just be constantly buying takeaways, which would not have been good for my bank account or my fitness. Speaking of fitness, I'm still doing parkrun, and I'm getting quicker. I've restarted to use the weights I bought as well, um, which I bought, you know, this time last year. Plus, I'm going out for more daytime jogs. It's a little too damp and autumnal to be running barefoot, given there's, you know, quite a lot of trees around here. But that one of the pairs of minimalist running sock things that I have are now quite worn through means it feels like it's almost the same thing these days. I've also started channeling my long-hidden cross-country running training vibes and doing hill work. I mean, the parkrun I do has hills on it, so severe hills, you know, for a parkrun. So it makes sense that I should, you know, take advantage of them, right? But back to socialising. I've also been out twice in the past week to events organised by one of the LGBTQIA plus organisations here in Glasgow. Firstly, again, to the specific non-binary group that meets monthly. And this time after the meet, a group of us decamped to a local pub, which was a nice change. Usually we just wend our separate ways after the meeting ends. 
Then, a couple of days ago, I was at a very casual music quiz in a broader Rainbow Community evening. It's still early days, but I'd like to think that, you know, slowly I'm finding a community up here that suits my style. I mean, I do chat with people in the church cafe after Parkrun, but it's not quite the same thing somehow. And no, I haven't joined a running group, mainly because I think it'd be too much... pressure? I was reminded a couple of days ago, though, to reconnect with the local community radio station, so there's possibly that too. We'll see. Now I'm pretty sure I'll be in Glasgow for the foreseeable future anyway. So, to this week's podcast, I guess. Now, as an aside, when I was editing one of my podcasts from late summer, there were a couple of moments in it where I kind of sounded a little drunk, where I was slightly slurring or else being less than coherent, more so than usual. While I often write my podcasts under the influence of alcohol, and, you know, parts of this one are no exception, I rarely record them with beer. In fact, all the research I've done suggests that you shouldn't even record after milk. One thing I will say, though, is I edited out all the hiccups and other throaty noises. I'd had a, you know, a homemade curry earlier that day, and it still seems to have been in my system. Today is not the same. I will be having a homemade curry, but later on. But beer, beer, beer. When I was originally musing about what to do for upcoming episodes a couple of months back, my friend V wondered if I'd talked about beer much, because, you know, it's something that seems to be quite a common thing in my everyday life. And, well, yes, I've already done one podcast about beer. That was prompted primarily by a blog post I'd written about beer in the USA when I found out that American beer was more than just mass-produced lager and was, in reality, actually pretty good. It was also released two years ago, and I've drank more beer since then. Self-evidently, if you're a regular listener to my pod or my Instagram feed. And regarding blog posts, while I've done a couple more about beer, they've been quite specific, you know, beer in the USA, beer in Germany, that kind of thing, rather than about beer as a concept. Part of the reason for this is that I'm not a travel blogger. By which I mean, if I were, it would be fairly simple, bordering on obligatory, for me to do lots of beer posts talking about, you know, best beers in, or good breweries from, and of course, 12 best pubs in. Not going to lie... I do need to write a blog post about the city of Birmingham, and despite being the UK's largest city admin area, terms and conditions apply, don't at me, I might do a pod on the UK cities, actually, given for some reason we've just created a few, Milton Keynes, really, and then rant about the definitions and absurdities of Kirklees, Cornwall, Rochester and Inverness. Anyway, uh, the thing with Birmingham is that there's not an awful lot of reason to go there, except beer. Some very good pubs in the centre of Birmingham, but that's not the point. Well, it's not my main point. Thing is, pubs close. Even breweries close. When I was originally typing this podcast intro, I'd not long earlier heard one of the breweries in Sheffield, Kellamarlin Brewery, announced its closure. I'd quite liked them. And I don't really like having the admin of having to keep my web pages up to date. You know, battles in 1461 will always have happened in 1461. The beers of Birmingham will be forever changing. So I've never really thought about, you know, talking about specific beers and breweries, at least in the context of you must go here and you must try this. What I can talk about, though, is, you know, beer in general, different beer styles, where my interest came from, and, you know, unusual experiences and quirky beers that I've had in my life around and about. My initial plan for this subject now, though, had been to do one large pod on beer covering everything. But when I was collating my information on and writing about my press trip to Pilsen, where I drank beer for three and a half days, I realised I had enough content on that trip alone for it to warrant its own podcast. It also made sense to separate it out since it was a separate trip with a specific audience interested in it, meaning this pod could be a bit more generic. With hindsight, that was just as well. No one's ready for a two-hour podcast from me. 
least of all me. Joining me on the press trip was my friend Dave, who blogs and drinks over at Man vs. Globe. He also used to work for a brewery, so has been very helpful with some of the more technical details that I come to later in this pod. But at the end of the press trip, on our way back to Prague, we sat on the train and had a long conversation about beer. And excuse the train noise for this, but I recorded it with these podcasts in mind. The full chat I'm going to put on my Patreon. (gasps) But throughout this pod, I'll be taking extracts from it to punctuate my talking. So why don't you settle down, open a beer? I will accept non-alcoholic ones, though curiously, I've never found a non-alcoholic beer I've liked. The last one I had was some German beer that tasted and smelt of feet that had gone off. And I'm not into that kind of thing. A kickback and listen to Tales of Ales. But let's start at the beginning. Where does this love of beer come from? For me, I'd say it's been a part of my life for as long as I can remember. My parents have told me tales of me as a toddler, who, if anyone had put a beer glass on the floor, I'd crawl across the carpet to pick it up and try and drink it. I grew up with my grandparents and my uncle. My grandfather apparently brewed his own beer, and my uncle had several stints of taking it up as a hobby. And when I became old enough to know what it was all about, he let me help out with it. You know, making it, and obviously that involved drinking it. I have tried homebrewing since myself, but it's just far too much admin and requires too much planning. It's a lot of effort and there are far easier things to do in life, you know, like pay someone else to make it for me in the same way that I don't do my own plumbing or handle my own Pinterest account. I can't remember when my first beer was, but I do know I was certainly comfortable enough around it for it not to be a shock to the system when I was a mid-teen and it was the in thing to do. What I also can tell you is that I got my A-level results on my 18th birthday and my first legal pint was clearly not my first ever pint. For some reason, by this point, I'd discovered cider, and I had a couple of uh, incidents with it that we will not talk about. But cider stayed my preferred drink of choice until partway through my first year at university in Birmingham. The student bars had subsidised prices, but even so I was having to watch my finances, because that's what students do. And I noticed that mild was incredibly cheap relative to anything else, for reasons. And thus began my preference for darker beers. Someone who's less clear on how they got into beer is Heidi, who you'll hear more from later in this pod. She's someone I know online as Squibvicious, a blog name based on her maiden name that honestly took me over a year to get the pun contained therein. She wanted me to tell you she also runs a beer-focused account called Squibbit Brews with her partner Michael, Squibbit being a merge of both their surnames. So my love of beer is is quite a newfound love. I was always um, quite a wine lover growing up. I spent a lot of my childhood in vineyards in Rioja with my parents. I mean, my dad's even built a wine cellar underneath their house. That's how much they, they love wine. So then I moved into cider as I sort of turned 18 and started going to music festivals. And I just felt that cider was quite a nice thing to, to drink whilst sat outside listening to good music in the sunshine. And then for some unknown reason, I just really got into beers. I don't mean popping to my local pub and having a pint of Stella in an unmatched glass. I'm talking about real ales, craft beers, what I would deem as the good stuff, that sweet, sweet nectar. But yeah, I I don't really know how it came into my life. Um, I just sort of hopped on this craft beer bandwagon, I guess. And I have zero regrets for doing so. I bloody love trying new beers and I'm finding it a really exciting journey to be on. 
But where does beer come from? The short answer is Germany. The long answer is... The oldest evidence for brewing in Europe in the archaeological record is a big pot with a flavoured form of weiss beer found in the grave of a Celtic chieftain near Kumbach in what is now northern Bavaria in around 800 BC. This makes Bavarian, German, beer older than Rome, which is quite a legacy. Brewing seems to have become and remained a mainstay of the Germanic tribes and both their foes and their descendants. There's evidence, for example, of the Roman Empire taking to brewing when they occupied part of the area around Regensburg. This, remember, is a civilization more noted for its reliance on wine. As for Bavaria itself, um, this may be partly because the climate and agriculture favours the growth of barley and other flavourings. It's interesting to note that while beer didn't originally have to be made with hops, the first recorded instance of hops being used for beer was in the 8th century in what is now south-central Bavaria. The region, Hallertau, is reported to grow just over a quarter, as in about 26.66%, of the entire world hop crop. Another aspect is religious, and Bavaria in particular is home to a large number of monasteries, and just like the famous ones in Belgium, monks have been brewing beer for over a thousand years. Indeed, two breweries that claim to be the world's oldest continually operating ones are both Bavarian monasteries, at Weichenstephen and Weltenberg. And, you might well ask, why are monks noted for producing beer? Well, it's a twofold reason. Firstly, daily monkish life wasn't all prayer and sleep. Much of their daytime would have been spent gardening, for want of a better word. Remember, monasteries would have to have been largely self-sufficient at first, so they consumed what they grew. And it makes sense that, you know, with a lot of free time in an enclosed space, they would have taken to experimentation and making use of what was available in a variety of ways, if only to make their mealtimes more interesting. Secondly, remember that one of the duties of a monk was to give back to the community, so much of the excess of what they grew, what they made, would have been traded in the local area. So monks brewed beer to drink themselves or to sell, but they also produced lots of other consumables like, you know, cheese, bread and clothing. Now, obviously a combination of trade and military expansion in the first millennium of the Common Era, coupled with the exploits of monkish Christianity not long after, you know, missionaries and such like, meant that not only was beer knowledge transferred around the world, but also the raw materials, the hops, the barley, came with them and found new places to grow and thrive. I suppose at this point I ought to talk about what kinds of beer there are out there. Many people, well, so many countries even, have a very particular and limited view about what beer means. So, you already know Pilsner. Or at least I hope you do, because you'll have heard my previous podcast episode. Here are a few more. Lager. Ah, lager. The most common of all forms of beer. And the one you're most likely to get if you ask for a beer. Pilsner is a form of lager, but then so is Carling, and they taste very different. Modern, mass-produced lager I tend to find very industrial in taste. It's a bit too crisp for my liking and often has a weird metallic aftertaste, for reasons unknown. But the existence of German beers, which I will talk about shortly, and of course Pilsner itself, proves that lager can be drinkable. Technically, the difference between lager and other types of ale is in the fermentations. The two styles are cold fermenting, which is lager, and warm fermenting, which is all of the rails. While the nature of brewing itself is beyond the scope of this pod, and beyond the scope of this podder, let's be honest, the smell of hops to me smells exactly like the smell of cannabis. So while I said earlier I've briefly made my own beer, it's possible you're glad you've never tasted it. Although, there is a brewery in Andorra which produces beer with hemp, so your mileage may vary. 
The most obvious effect and difference between the two types of fermentation is one of time. In warm fermented beers, fermentation is pretty quick, as in it's a couple of weeks, while for cold fermented beers, the yeast ferments over a much longer period, often several months, which is why everyone in Pilsen stored their barrels in the underground cellars and covered them with ice. Unrelated, lager is best served colder than ale, which is possibly why it works better when served from keg dispensers or cans straight from the fridge. Bitter is the mainstay of traditional brewing in the UK. It's kind of synonymous with the vague term pale ale, which are beers with less roasted malts, so they tend to look paler than other types of ale, specifically mild, which we'll come on to in a little bit. They're usually in the low to mid range of single-figure alcoholic percentages and are quite hoppy with, I mean, a bitter aftertaste. The clue's in the name, really. If you're buying a beer in a pub in the UK and it's not lager, there's a strong chance it's some variety of bitter. One specific variety of bitter is known more commonly by its acronym, IPA, or India Pale Ale. And it's a very common style of beer. Its name comes from the 19th century when a couple of British brewers exported pale ales to India. They tend to be much more hoppy than even other types of bitter. And these days there are many different sub-styles of IPA. It's very popular in the USA where there's a tendency to add as many hops to the mix as taste allows, leading to some very juicy and citric flavours that often feel like they need a bit longer resting time. These days, they also tend to be quite strong for beer in the high single-figure percentages of alcohol. Although quite watery, their hoppiness and juiciness tends to make them harder to drink than a typical beer, at least harder to drink quickly. You may also see the acronym APA around. This is American Pale Ale. It's similar to IPA, but tends to be slightly lower in alcohol content and slightly darker. The name comes from the primarily using American cultivated hops rather than those grown elsewhere in the world. Though, of course, it's a beer style, not a geographic restriction. At the other end of the taste colour line is mild. My researchers suggested this is a style very particular to the UK. I know it mostly from my time in the Birmingham and Black Country area, although they, they do produce it quite a lot in the north, including Liverpool, where I grew up. These days, it tends to be similar in strength to bitter, but much darker, with more of a malty than a hoppy taste. They also tend to be quite smooth. Some of the malts they used tend to be known as chocolate malts due to their colour and flavour when roasted, and this often comes out in the taste. They're very easy to drink in general, having the texture of not quite milk, but also something more interesting and smoother than water. Also dark, but quite different, are porters and stouts. I'll be quite honest here with you and say I've never really known what the difference is between the two. Stouts came first, having been brewed since the late 1600s, and porters followed later, originally known as stout porters, and were originally centred on London. Apparently they were popular amongst, well, actual porters, hence the epithet. That said, the most famous example now of either is Guinness, which, when younger, had a habit of making me sneeze. They're often quite textured and quite rich, as opposed to the more watery bitters. Again, they're quite malty more than hoppy, and are often used as the base for fruity flavours, so plum porter in particular is quite common. In Central and Eastern Europe, they're commonly quite strong. Baltic and Russian imperial stouts regularly reach into the 10-12% alcohol mark. Also strong are a variety of beers with names such as Old Ale, Strong Ale, Barley Wine and anything calling itself Barrel Aged. These beers, by their nature, are left to mature for longer, aged in beer parlance. This makes them more robust with both stronger and sweeter flavours and more alcohol, 8% at the low end up to, well, I mean, I've seen 14% beers before now. Some are aged in barrels previously used for spirits like bourbon and whiskey and the flavours of those spirits seep into the beer. 
What you end up with are beers that taste exactly as strong as they say on the label. I love them, but you can't really have more than one of them at any one time because you'll die. The other common style, especially in the UK and Belgium, are the sours, the gozes, the lambics and the wild beers. I've never been terribly fond of them as I don't see the appeal in drinking a beer that has the same effect on my face and taste buds as those sour sweets you had as a kid when you sort of pulled a really funny face and a bit like gurning and just, you know, it just feels weird and it just looks weird. It's like, why would you why would you drink a beer that makes your face do that? They're made through interesting application of yeasts. With most beers, the yeasts used are strictly controlled, but with sours and wild beers, yeasts are allowed to spontaneously occur, almost in the case of, oh, we haven't closed the lid properly, let's see what happens. Think of them as the chaotic neutral of beers. The idea is to increase the acidity of the beer, making them more tart and sweet in flavour. And it's common to add fruit to the brewing processes too, especially citrus fruit. So oranges, lemons, limes and grapefruits are regular additions. Here's Dave and I talking about sour beers we sampled on our press trip. And it's nice that they, there are enough craft brewers here doing different things as mm-hmm. well. By Raven, for example. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Which was, what did they have? They had the, Mostly sours. but A lot of sours. Mandarin sour, yeah. lime sour. That was the lemon cheesecake, wasn't it? Lemon they cheesecake had, was yeah. a bit of a weird one. Yeah. Yeah. They, it wasn't them, it was Proud that had the, the yuzu. Yeah, yuzu, because they said it was a trendy fruit point. Yes. I still don't know what yuzu is. Though. I have no idea what yuzu is. I know, I've heard of it, I've seen it in beers, but I've no idea what it is. Well, I just know that the beer tastes nice. Yes. Well, I mean, the ones we had at Raven weren't too bad. They were sour and they were fruity, but they weren't over... They, they didn't make my face contort in a, in a no, fruity... No, they weren't. Well, we tried his um, sour base that he was still fermenting. Yeah. When he was, kindly took us some out of the tap for us. And, yeah, it just tasted slightly sour, like lemon juice type yeah. sour. Well, that was before he fruited it. Yeah. Yeah, in the US, you found a mix of the really hot, like what they call hot bombs, I suppose. Hot bombs. Yeah, or like, um, and then your fruit sours. Like, I did a trip to Florida and it was all Florida orange sours everywhere I went, which was kind of nice, but if you're not into sours, it's not the best. <laughs> There's a few other styles you may have come across that were originally specific to Germany, although they're, of course, brewed worldwide now. A few of these include Marzen, from the German for March, the month it's traditionally brewed. It tends to be more hoppy, malty and stronger, so 5-6%. And this is also, it was able to be kept fresher whilst being stored over the summer. It's the traditional beer served at Oktoberfest. Bock, which is German for goat, but maybe a case of purposeful mishearing of the town of Einbeck. Originally brewed in Saxony. It's sweet, clear, strong, up to about 7.5%, and pretty easy to drink. There's also Doppelbock, which is the same, but more. It's darker, it's sweeter, it's much stronger. Here we may even reach into double-figure strengths. This is not a style to be downed in one. There's Rauschbier, another German style meaning smoked beer. The name comes from literal smoke being used in production. When making beer, the barley malt needs to be dried. Usually these days, this will be done in an oven, the temperature and length changing the colour and taste of the malt produced. In more ancient times, the barley may be simply left to dry in the sunshine. However, for Rausch beer, the malt is dried over an open flame, similar to how smoked fish is produced. The smell of the smoke, and presumably the wood used to start the fire, flavours the barley to produce a smoky-tasting malt. What you end up with is a beer that tastes faintly of smoked pork sausage. And Weiss beer, or white beer. 
is beer brewed with wheat rather than barley. Indeed, its name derives from wheat because wheat is white compared to most barley malts that are brown. But that doesn't mean you can't get darker coloured variations of it. It tends to be softer, more ephemeral when drinking it, sweeter and most bizarrely having an overall sense of banana. And this comes from the types of the yeasts that are used in its production. Now, there's a couple of terms that have been used a couple of times already in this pot. Uh, craft beer and real ale. The latter is more of a marketing term employed by the Campaign for Real Ale, camera, in the UK to describe traditionally made and traditionally poured beers. I'll come on to the latter part of that later. But essentially, both originally meant beer that isn't industrially mass-produced, or beer from smaller or more independent brewers rather than major conglomerates. Except that's not always true anymore, as some of the smaller brewers have got big. It's Brewdog Craft Beer, and some others have been taken over by larger firms, even if they've been allowed to operate independently. Like Beavertown Brewery, a reasonably sized craft brewer in London, is largely owned by Heineken, which explains why I see their beers everywhere. In addition, brewers like Pilsner Urkel create craft subsidiaries in order to produce more experimental, crafted beers that would be off-brand on their main account, as it were. Here's another extract from my chat with Dave, where we talk about these differences. I think one of the issues that I have with Britain is we have a very limited, a very narrow view of what beer is. Um, I, we tend to just favour the bitters and the ales. There's no we don't like experimenting, I think that's, that's part of the issue. Yeah, I think things are changing with what they call the craft beer revolution, I suppose, when all the craft beers popped up. And some of them, some of them can produce wild, like crazy and wild stuff. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm sometimes specifically wild beers. But well, yeah, I've, yeah, because I don't like sour, so I won't touch the, the wild yeah. beers at all. But yeah, I mean, I've, I've mentioned before that I had a chocolate caramel and peanut butter stout from uh, Neon Raptor that was fourteen percent and gorgeous, but you wouldn't have more than one of them because you couldn't. Well, the last <laughs> thing you'd think of Nottingham as having mostly that traditional pubs has got. The Yield Trip to Jerusalem, which is the of, oldest pub, or one of? It's got the Yield Trip to Jerusalem, which is the oldest pub in England. It's got the Bell, which is the oldest pub in England. And it's got the, the Old Salutation, which is the oldest pub in England. But then it's still got craft breweries as well. So yes. there's like the traditional side of it, and then yes. the more kind of modern craft beer side of it. But I think there's a difference between... And this, may, and this is something I've been confused about for years, and I think I'm now getting it. The difference between craft beer and real ale. Because a lot of those pubs sell real ale, but not necessarily craft beer. And by that, what I mean, I think, is you've got traditional brewers brewing good quality traditional beers, whereas they're not experimenting. Yeah. Whereas you've got a lot of craft beers now that craft breweries that experiment and are, are liable to do strange things. So you wouldn't expect. I mean, one of the biggest breweries in Nottingham is Castle Rock. Yeah. They're huge. They do really good beer, but you wouldn't expect them to do a like a peanut butter and gooseberry stout no you wouldn't but then but if Neil Raptor did a peanut butter and gooseberry stout I wouldn't I wouldn't even raise an eyebrow well I suppose that's one definition of craft beer but it depends how you view it so I'd view a small producer of real ale as a craft brewery just yes. because they're they may be independent mm -hmm. I think for me independence mm -hmm. is what craft beer is but that would mean that proud who we visited in Pilsen wouldn't yeah. be craft beer but they it kind are. of is because they're yeah. very experimental yeah, yeah. So I don't think there's one true definition, really. Yeah, it's a tricky one, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And there's a lot of people that wouldn't touch Proud because they're owned by a yes, even if, company. Even if they make decent beers. And they do. They yeah. definitely do. <laughs> yeah, it's a strange one. Yeah, and I've, I've certainly had some independent breweries whose beers have been a bit naff. Yeah, I have, but I'm not going to name any names I'm not going to name any recorded. I'm not going to name any names either, but a couple of them have since gone bust. Okay. 
<laughs> but that might be why. <laughs> yes, very much so. Anyway, another thing that changes the taste of beer, regardless of the type of beer it is, is the way it's served up. I don't mean like you heard in the last episode where I talked about the four ways the Czechs tap, not pour, tap their pilsners, although that is part of it. Rather, I mean something a bit more generic, how the beer gets into your glass in the first place. If at all, though that's much easier for some methods than others, and I'm absolutely not suggesting that you go behind a bar and stick your mouth over the beer pump. Even if you are a student and think to yourself, that's exactly what your friend Phil did last night. In the UK, at least, there's two main ways you get beer at a pub, and I'm going to call them cask and keg, although this is a bit of an oversimplification. They're both forms of draft beer. That is, beer that's served by the use of hand pumps to draw, the origin of the two words is the same from the Old English dragon, to pull, the beer from a barrel, through a pipe, and up to the bar into the glass. The difference between cask and keg is firstly in the nature of the barrel, and secondly in the nature of the beer itself. Casks are traditionally made of wood, and in the old days, beer would have been dispensed from them by gravity alone, although these days it's mostly done via the pump from the cellars, the mechanism being similar to the old-fashioned fire engine hose. Some beers stored in casks are still live, that is, with the yeast still fermenting in the barrel, so the beer that you get in the glass is unfiltered. This also means they retain the natural fizziness the yeasts give them, though equally they do tend to go flat if they're left undrank. Keg, on the other hand, tends to be metal containers and pressurised. The beer inside also tends to have been filtered of yeast, making it dead. Both of these aspects make the beer last longer and easier to handle, but some would say this was at the detriment of the taste and mouthfeel of the bitter. Mouthfeel. Jesus. This process also makes the beer flat. Due to the keg being pressurised, the beer is forced out at a higher pressure. This, and the addition of gas to sparkle or froth the beer up, usually carbon dioxide, nitrogen, or a mixture of both, make the resulting beer foamy and very smooth. Keg ale also tends to be served slightly colder than cask ale. The latter tends to be at room temperature or cellar temperature, whereas kegged beers tend to be more like fridge temperature. One of the things I've noticed too is beers on keg tend to be more expensive than beers on cask. This is especially notable on the few times I've been to pubs where the same beer has been available at the same time in both methods. Dave, who you hear from throughout this pod, suggests this is either because kegs are generally smaller so you lose out on advantages of scale and need more kegs, and the kegs themselves tend to be outsourced, or more likely because, as stated above, keg beer needs to be carbonated after filtration and carbonating gases are quite expensive. However, both of these methods only work if you're drinking on site, or if you're making your own. For a more flexible approach, beer is also available in bottles and cans, and boxes, growlers, crowlers, and bags, but they're all a bit less common in the UK. I have a couple of times bought boxes of beer, but generally only straight from the brewery itself, and with advance notice. Canning is apparently very similar to kegging. Indeed, Tave tells me that in the brewery he worked at for a while, both processes would often take place at the same time. Beer is carbonated in the large beer tanks on site, and the tank pressure pushes it through the lines to either the canning line or the fill heads for kegging. So essentially, canned beer should taste the same and feel the same as kegged beer. All the canning line does is fill the cans, adds a lid, washes the can, and attaches a label. Bottling is similar, except with glass bottles. And you can get bottle-conditioned beer. This is the equivalent to cascale in that it's unfiltered and fermentation continues in the bottle. Again, this means you have a live product which gives it a different feel, 
Plus, in terms of storage, although bottle-conditioned beer lasts longer than casked ale, it still has a shorter life expectancy than canned beer, and can be more affected by changes in temperature, sunlight and environmental conditions. You also have to be careful when you drink it, because there is still yeast and sediment in the bottom of the bottle. And what you really don't want to do is down it all in one and get a taste of that yeast. Mmm, yeasty beer. I have a tendency to drink both cans and bottles at room temperature because I'm just used to drinking beer from cask at room temperature. It's a British thing, I think. People in Europe disparage this as warm beer, but it's really only as warm as the day you're drinking it. Most people keep both in the fridge. This is especially true of mass-produced lagers, where it's often the case that drinking it cold hides the true taste of it. Side note, a friend of mine from years ago took a crate of cans of Foster's Lager to a party. It was only after we drank three that we noticed the best before date on them was 11 months previously. You genuinely couldn't tell. I don't know what that says about either Foster's or best before dates, but you'd be hard pushed to get away with that for many craft ales. Now that we know what sort of beers there are and how we can be served them, the next question we face is, with so much choice, how do we decide which ones we try and work out which ones we like? The simple answer is, of course, trying them to find out. And you don't have to try every single beer for this. If you, for example, sample a taste of five different IPAs and find you hated all five, there's a fair chance IPAs are not for you. Before I talk about my experiences, I've done a bit too much speaking in these past few minutes, so I'll bring in a very beer-minded friend of mine. This is Claire, who blogs at Curious Claire. She's another travelish blogger, and I've weirdly only ever met her in pubs in Manchester, Hackneywick and Sheffield. She buys a lot of her beer online, and she told me what she looks for when she chooses a beer. So there's usually a couple of factors I consider when picking which beers to buy. After years of sampling beers from around the country and well the world, I know what breweries I like and which ones I really like. Most of my beer order will be made up of beers from breweries I know I love. Which beers I buy will depend on which ones are available and what styles they have. I'm very open-minded when it comes to beer styles. I like pretty much everything except sours. I don't like to drink the same styles each time, so I usually end up buying a selection. Stouts are probably my favourite style, but it was only when I started my monthly beer roundups that I noticed I drink a lot of hazy IPAs, so I guess I like them more than I realised. While most of my beer delivery will contain beers from breweries I know, I do try to throw in a couple I've never had before. I do like to sample a mixture of craft beers, so I want to try new breweries as well as the ones I know I love. I don't want to be closed-minded and only buy from a select few breweries. I want to sample beers from as many breweries as I can. Another important factor in my decision-making process is recommendations. I get most of my beers from a place called Craft Metropolis. They have a huge selection of beers available. You can get them delivered straight to your door. And if you spend more than £60, you get free delivery, which is great. I love picking my beers from their online shop. And I know these guys know their beers. So when they mention a beer in their newsletter and say it's great and it will sell out quickly, I know they mean it. I'm never disappointed with their beer recommendations. Actually, I just visited a New York taproom of a Brooklyn brewery just yesterday because it was one of their recommendations. I got myself a couple of cans because of them. Loved them so much that a visit to this brewery had to be on my US trip agenda. If you're out and about, though, you may want something a little smaller than a can, just in case you end up stuck in a pub on your own with a large glass of beer that you're not fussed on. Fortunately, there's a couple of ways around this. Beer in the UK is served in pints, 568ml, larger than the US pint, which is about 473ml, 
but you can also get them in half pints and often in third and two-third pints. The latter appear to be called schooners, at least up in Glasgow, and there's a pub up here that has a few beers on keg that are only available in that size, which is a weird business choice if you ask me. Half pints are a great way to sample beers, since you know if you don't like it, you've not wasted much. Thirds, if you can get them, are even better, since you can just quickly down it without too much hassle, unless it's a juicy double IPA, and then you'll be hiccuping and burping all evening. Many craft beer bars, less so traditional pubs, although some do, do flights. These tend to be a bit more expensive, but they offer a number of small glasses of beer, usually between three and six, and each of them are somewhere between 100 and 200 mil, so maybe around a quarter to a third of a pint, for a set price. And you can choose whichever of the beers on offer to make it up with. This is a great way of sampling different beers that you may not otherwise know, and provides you with a good way of varying your beers. It also means you can get to taste some of the stronger ones without knocking yourself out a bit for the rest of the day. Another way of sampling different beers is to go for a beer festival. These days, many pubs market themselves as having beer festivals where they buy in a number of beers for a weekend or so and replace them as they run out. But it's not quite the same vibe as a proper beer festival. These take place in large areas, often a community centre, village hall, marquee or tourist attraction. So I've been to them at ruined castles and at railway museums where many breweries, solidly double figures, will send a cask or box or two of beers. This means that there may be anywhere between, say, 50 and a few hundred beers, depending on the size of the event, that people can walk around and sample. Usually they're served in half-pint glasses, and the ones organised by camera, many of the glasses themselves are branded specifically for that beer festival, so you can just buy them as a keepsake. Well, I mean, you pay a deposit to use one in the first place, but if you want to keep it, it just means you don't get your deposit back. The other nice thing about craft beer bars, microphobes, and especially tap rooms, as well as beer festivals actually, is that you know the people working there have a love for beer and are very knowledgeable about it. It's not like you might find at a chain pub where people view it as more of a job, or even a suburban local pub where people might view it more as a community centre. This means that you can walk into them and speak to the bar staff, asking them what they recommend or what they have on offer that suits your preferences. Haiti is fond of visiting breweries, partly for that reason. We're big fans of, of North Brew Co and Northern Monk. So we spent time in their tap rooms, in their brewery. Um, we actually had a little bit of a tour around the Northern Monk brewery, which was great. The staff in both places are really open to chatting to you, teaching you about their beers and what they're up to and what's in the pipeline for the breweries. So it's really exciting to hear things from people that actually work there and, and learn more about their breweries whilst travelling and obviously doing a hell of a lot of drinking. It's great. There is also, of course, Untapped. I've been making notes about the beers I've been drinking for years, but Untapped is a way to do this electronically. It's an app on the phone where people can make notes on the beers they drink, where they drank them, and rate the beer out of five. And you can add a beer if you come across one that isn't listed. I've done this a couple of times with very new or quite obscure beers. The benefit this has is that you can see a beer available, be it in a pub, shop, festival. You don't know if you'd like it. You can look it up on the app and see what other people have said about it and how much they rate it. So you can get a feel about how it's, you know, gone down in general. You can also use the app to seek out beers and check pubs. While not often updated, it can give a sense as to what beers have been drunk recently in a particular place. So you can tell if it's like the sort of pub you'd want to go to. Caveat, I am a beer snob. Finally, there's the sheer power of marketing. In pubs, beer is usually displayed with a pump clip, a badge which tells you what the beer is called, who makes it, how strong it is, and sometimes what sort of beer it is, along with a logo of the brewer and some kind of fancy picture or design to make it stand out. 
At beer festivals, everything's packaged more blandly, but instead there's usually a booklet produced that lists the beers, along with some tasting notes from proper beer experts, so not me. So you have more of an indication as to what it actually tastes of, because sometimes just saying it's an IPA doesn't tell you a lot about the beer, the flavours the hops give, or how likely it is to suck the moisture out your mouth. Thing is, while pump clips are traditional, it's also a form of advertising. Labels, and indeed names, jump out at you, going, drink me. It must also be said that breweries often have a very dry sense of humour and will often use comedy to sell you beers. There's a whole host of beers, and indeed breweries, with very punny or satirical names. So I've recently had beers called Winona Ryder, a stout made with rye rather than barley, Moulin Rouge, a red ale, red ale, whose beer club has cows dancing the can-can, and Pacific Gravity, a pun on specific gravity, a measure of alcohol in beer, coupled with Pacific Key, a post-industrial site by the river in Glasgow, near where the brewery who makes it is. In addition, while the pump clip images can be quite fun, I did once have a beer called Aromantica because of both the name and the design on the pump clip of a barefoot woman holding a glass of beer. What do you mean doubly relatable? Marketing really comes out on the labels of cans and bottles, with all manner of bright colours, cartoon-like imagery, good landscapes, creepy skulls, pretty much anything and everything. Dea and Merakai breweries are particularly fond of this, with bright and colourful designs and names like Drinking Cos My Mouth Is Lonely, I'm Your Biggest Fan, Can We Get A New Aircraft, and Put The Kettle On, the designs relating to the names. So, for instance, I'm Your Biggest Fan has lots of people in some kind of 1960s trippy hippie rainbow environment, all dancing and holding beer reverentially. Like me, Curious Claire is someone who's easily dragged into these side of things. I don't know if I should admit this or not, but can designs and beer names play a big role in my beer selection process? I just love cute can designs and funny beer names, so I'll usually pick those over the beers with standard designs and names. If they're actually any good, it's down to pure luck. Sometimes, of course, what you get is completely unexpected and unlike anything you've ever drank before. What, what's the weirdest thing you've ever had in a beer? Ooh. Well, the weirdest beer I've ever had was the one I had last night when we had a non-alcoholic beer that was just oh, overly malty. <laughs> it tasted like you'd got the spent brain out of a tank <laughs> and just chewed on it for ten minutes. I think it's probably the worst beer I've ever had. And it was actually really unusual. It was it was supremely unusual. I couldn't drink it and it was only a hundred mil, I couldn't I couldn't yeah, drink it. It was disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> Even though it was a really good brewery, but that beer was I wonder if it was a mistake. <laughs> And the brewer just tried to get away with his error. Because yeah. I have no idea how you would even do that. <laughs> <laughs> but other than that, I don't know what the weirdest one I've ever had is. I had one that tasted of cardboard once. Was that on purpose? Or was I, I assume it was... I think so. It was, a, it was an experimental craft beer in somewhere in Birmingham. Okay. Um, and I... It was again another one of those trips with a couple of friends of mine and we just go around all the rail aisles. And... Um, we were making notes about how, in the same style as you would do on Untap, we were making that sort of marks out five as to how we thought of it. And we described that one as the um, square root of minus Garfield. <laughs> we, we couldn't work out how to describe it. It just wasn't... If you've, got, if you've got a line of good beer to bad beer, this was sort of up there somewhere. It was... It was kind of off the scale. It was yeah. it was off the scale, but not off the scale either, either direction. It was off the scale upwards. It's just or, a weird it one. It was just it was just yeah. It was just we don't know how to categorise this beer. Well, I had one from a North Yorkshire brewery 
a couple of weeks ago. Someone came around and they'd been driving through North Yorkshire, so they'd picked up some beers on en route to my house. And it was meant to be just a regular pale ale, but it tastes like a smoked beer, but not in the, what you would expect in a German smoked beer. It just tasted like someone had poured an ashtray into it. Oh, God. And I was kind of... <laughs> I was thinking, either they've... I don't know how you would do that by accident, unless yeah. someone did actually just drop a fag into the vat and mm-hmm. the whole thing just tasted of c- cigarette smoke. I have had a beer from a West Yorkshire brewery. Somewhere like... Well, I can't remember if it was from Wakefield or Barnsley, so it was on that sort of West Yorkshire, South Yorkshire border. The rhubarb triangle, maybe. The rhubarb triangle. <laughs> the tasted like a working men's club circa 1973 it tasted like rugby league it tasted like <laughs> rugby league and racist comedy yes <laughs> it, it, it tasted like bitter mixed with cigarette smoke That's yeah. the, it just tasted like it was was that in a nostalgic way or was it in a it wasn't great kind of way it wasn't the best beer I'd had, but it was drinkable. But it was drinkable partly because of nostalgia. Yeah, that's good though. <laughs> Maybe sometimes you just need beer to invoke some a feeling in you rather than actually taste good. What, what what it actually brought to mind is why don't companies like John Player actually produce beer? Because that's what they would. That's, that is that would be if John if John Player produced beer, it would taste like that. I don't know if they'd get around the advertising rules. Maybe they'd have to have <laughs> one of those blank labels that just has a warning on it with a tumour in someone's mouth or whatever they do now. <laughs> this leads into a quick side musing about my favourite beers. It's something I've touched on across this pod, but my favourite beer is Panapot from Destroyser Brewery in Belgium because it's strong, it's 10.5%, it's dark, it's rich and it's chocolatey. It's a bit like drinking an alcoholic chocolate mousse. My favourite British beer is from a brewery in the black country, Sarah Hughes, and it's a 6% mild called Dark Ruby, and it's won awards before now, so I'm not the only one who appreciates it. My local microhub in Kirkby and Ashfield had a cask of it on once. It lasted six hours, and several people had to get their partners in to escort them home after a couple of pints. I ended up with a free pint because the poor chap couldn't face any more of it. You can tell I like the darker beers, but I will drink more or less anything, although I do work at mass-produced lagers, sour beers and American polyhopped IPAs that make me feel that they're just doing it for the bitterness kudos. Here's another extract from my conversation with Dave about his favourite beers. What I wanted to ask you was about your favourite beers, I guess. Um, like favourite styles of beer, is there anything type of beer you don't like? Regions that you like? Well, I'm a very bland man. <laughs> You're, well, not it's not necessarily... you're not a bland man. Well, in terms of beer... I mean, you're, wearing, you're, wear, you're wearing Ecru, but... Yeah, I'm wearing a bland, wearing bland clothes, but... The, um, in terms of what I will drink at home in the UK, is that I will tend to go for a big hoppy, powerful IPA, so yep. a double IPA and a triple IPA. So... Ah. Yeah. splat. As I was saying, before I rudely interrupted. <laughs> big, big hoppy IPAs. Yeah, so big hoppy IPA, double, triple, the more, yeah. and danker, the better, I suppose. <laughs> but I do have like my preferred hops, so mm-hmm. stuff like Idaho 7 and things like that. Um, How do you feel about the American style of just making it as hoppy as possible? Because, I, I mean, I tend to find that it just makes everything taste like it's still being brewed. Controversially, I really like that. Which is why, <laughs> when I say I'm bland, I just like that because it's and luckily it's quite fashionable still. Yeah. So everyone's doing it all the time. And it's quadruple IPA. Who is making because it, yeah. it's what sells. Yeah. 
and it sells because people like me lap it up. <laughs> but in terms, of, but I will happily have like a pint of mild or mm-hmm. something like that. But that's maybe the northerner in me. Yeah, or like a good bitter, <laughs> something like that. Even like a John Smith's or something. Oh, I haven't had John Smith's for ages. But there's nothing better than sitting in like an old man pub that isn't a Weatherspoons. That looks like you, if you walk in, you look like you might get killed. Mm. And then sitting down to a pint of bitter and. There's there's many a pub like that in Glasgow near where I live. Um, I suppose they all drink like tenants, but see, it's a bit different doing it in a city that you don't know because you never know if you're going to walk into the wrong pub. <laughs> so there's pubs in Leeds I wouldn't go in. Yeah. The Three Lakes, which is a notoriously dangerous pub. But um, yeah, so it depends. So, but I don't think there's really any styles I do like. It's like you, I don't necessarily like styles. Yeah. I'll have them if they're not too sour. Yeah. Which can be a pain if you're traveling because everyone in some places, like in the US, they want to make a lot of sours. They're very fond of very sour beers in my experience. So, I've mentioned them quite a lot in this pod, but I wanted to talk specifically about them now. One of the things that I've really liked over the last decade or so is the rise of micropubs. When I was younger, pubs tended to be either sports bars, pseudo clubs, places like Walkabout, or old buildings filled with older people, mainly men. The former concentrated on mass-produced populist beers like Carling and Guinness, and whilst the latter often had real ale, or at least a bitter or two on tap, their selection was quite limited relative to their size. What micropubs seem to have done is provide a small cafe-like environment in which to drink beer. Now, there's no real sense of definition of micropub, but in the UK, at least, there is the Micropub Association, founded in 2012, which defines itself as a small free house which listens to its customers, mainly serves cascales, promotes conversation, shuns all form of electronic entertainment, and dabbles in traditional pub snacks. It appears the first one was set up in 2005 in Kent, and many, many, many more have followed since. When I lived in Kirkby and Ashfield, my local micropub was called Dandy Cock. Originally one small room with two big and two small tables and a few stools near the bar on the site of a barber's, and prior to that half a printing shop, it later expanded to a similar sized second room at the back. You could apparently fit up to 50-60 people in the whole place, but I've genuinely no idea how. It served a rolling selection of four local real ales on cask and six ciders, and over 260 gins the most popular of which, they said, was rhubarb. They definitely serve traditional pub snacks, including nuts, pork scratchings, and the rather niche foodstuff that is the pickled egg, found generally only in English pubs and amongst the Pennsylvania Dutch. I've never had one, because why? Regarding electronic entertainment, they did have Wi-Fi, but as I used it as a place to escape my house and focus on blogging and podcast writing, I told them to refuse to tell me the password. There was also a minor mumble of malcontent when they started playing music through the speakers that they did occasionally have live guitar folk bands playing. As for conversation, it very much had a kind of regular scene and the owners and guard staff pretty much knew most people who came through the door after only a couple of visits. It was very homely. Obviously, I've not been there since 2020 because I've not spent any time in the area. In Glasgow now, I have a place close to where I live called Curious Liquids, which is a similar size but very different in vibe. The main one being that it's not technically a pub, rather it's a beer and wine shop with tables you can sit at. It's attached to Phillies, a larger, more bar-like place behind it that sells a variety of craft beer on keg and occasionally has some weird music going on, like a German umpire-style band doing covers of modern pop hits, or a bandaoke, you know, karaoke with a live band rather than with recorded music. And an awful lot of pub quizzes. 
But Curious Liquids itself, I don't know if it qualifies as a micropub in the strictest definition, as it only sells beer in bottles and cans. It has low-volume music, and the pub snacks include nuts, olives, and small cheese boards. But I'm counting it as such, as I treat it in the same way. Related to micropubs are brewery tap houses. Some, like the Neon Raptor Brew Tap in Nottingham, are small open spaces contained within their brewery warehouse and have a kind of minimal industrial vibe. Others, like the Schilling Brewery in Glasgow or the Lincoln Green Brewery in Hucknall, are actual pubs that they run. What's great about them is that not only do you get to try most of the beers that the brewery makes, but also a good selection of local and regional beers that they've brought in. Some breweries own and operate a series of pubs with a similar vibe, and these are more traditional-looking English pubs, but with a much stronger emphasis on the beer selection than pubs tended to be a few years back. The one that springs to mind the most is the Castle Rock Brewery in Nottingham, who operates several pubs across the city, each of which is a good place to stop and spend an evening drinking through their offerings. The Lincoln Chipotle on Mansfield Road in the city often had up to 13 beers on tap, which made it a great place to hang out waiting for a bus home. I mean, this is a much smaller number than the bars I was in in the USA, which had upwards of 50 all lined up, but that's the USA and they like to do things bigger. And anyway, they were keg rather than cask. Heidi also likes her local micropub, as she talks about here. We do also visit our local micropub uh, at least once a week. Last week we was there twice. I have plans to visit again this week. And we, we've been at least once a week since they reopened after lockdown. And we've learned so much of our beer knowledge from the wonderful owners. It's called The Hop Inn, and that's in Hornchurch. And, yeah, we've just learned so much about beer whilst being in there. Yeah, not only from the owners, but from the people that we've made friends with whilst drinking there. The beer scene has a, a really incredible community that we're really, really glad we've become part of. Obviously, I feel like I've got a million things I still need to learn when it comes to beer, but nobody seems to judge you on that. Nobody feels like you need to be an expert. We put up little reviews on our Instagram of the beers we've drunk, whether it's in the hop-in or at a brewery we've been to or, you know, just something we've picked up picked up online. And people don't judge. People just enjoy that you're enjoying your beer. And I think that's a really, really wholesome thing considering you know, the world isn't an entirely great place at the moment, but the beer community is very wholesome and we're just really, really happy to be part of it at the moment, I think. I suppose I ought to tie this whole pod together and talk about travelling for beer. In truth, it's not something I've really done. This may surprise you. However, with me, it's more a case of I like to travel and while I'm there, it's a cool idea to sample local beers. It's just that quite often I visit places that aren't really big on beer culture. Vanuatu has Tusca Lager and Tusca with Lemon, which was marginally better, or Bangladesh. I did see a huge billboard for Tiger Beer at one point, but I never found anywhere that sold it. Not that I was expecting to. That said, it's always nice to come across local beer, and I'll certainly make a beeline for it if I know it's there. I've been to Sherpa Brewing, which advertised itself as the only craft brewer in Nepal, Timpakara in the west of the country. And I've been to the Palawenio Brewery in Philippines, notable also for being entirely female run. The only two times I've travelled with the specific intent for beer, though, have been my recent press trip to Pilsen and about 10 years ago, my first visit to Belgium. And even then, I wasn't going just for the beer. It was more a case of the beer was one of the reasons I went there and then. I even set off with a huge backpack half full because I don't take much on holidays anyway, especially on a five day trip in summer. So I could fill it all with beer before catching the train back. Heidi has a similar life goal. 
And yes, we will continue to travel for beer. We are planning to jump on the Eurostar and head into Bruges. Well, you know, head into Brussels and then jump on the train down to Bruges and spend some time there drinking Belgian beers. Is that something we've not really drunk a lot of, but we're very interested after talking to friends that have been and have recommended it? Dave also agrees with the love for Belgian beer. Well, I think they, Belgium do make the best beer in the world. Yes, I agree. And <laughs> specifically kind of the Trappist breweries. Yes. Kind of, I, I, I do think there's a bit of a, a pretentiousness about the, the Trappist breweries. Oh, but There is, because there's one where you can only order six bottles a year and you have to go and pick it up from the brewery. West, West Valita. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's, it's considered to be the best beer in the world, but I think that's just because it's so exclusive. I have had it. Uh, I don't know if it's West Valita in 12 or West Valita in 10, but there's a there was a one of the bars in in Brussels I had it in because it was all, it was the most expensive beer on the menu, yeah. but I figured I'm never going to have this again. I might as well have it. Yeah, because you're never going to go yeah. to the brewery yourself and I, pick I'm up. I'm never going to go to the West Valita brewery. Um... I'm not going to say it was the best beer I've ever had, but I'm going to tell you that it was it was pretty good. I'm not saying it was worth the hype, but I'm saying it was, you know, it, 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 it was hypeable. Well, it's an experience anyway, because you've probably been building up to having that at some <laughs> point, and then you finally found it, so you got the yes. excitement of finding it. So, mm-hmm. at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. No. As long as it wasn't terrible, yes. it doesn't yeah, actually matter. Yeah, I mean, if it had been, you know, hyped up to that, and I tasted it, it was sort of like a... A weird watered-down bitter or something, and I, yeah. I would have been a bit disappointed, but it wasn't. Also, while I've travelled around the UK visiting places because of beer festivals, these were places that I may not have previously been to, so I took the opportunity to explore the town while I was there. Heidi also does this, as you'll hear now. More recently, since having got into beers, myself and my boyfriend Mike, who I share my Squibbert Brews Instagram account with, have begun travelling for beer. Most recently, we went on what we would like to call a brew grimmage um, to Tiny Rebel, which was probably my gateway beer. I know lots of people um, aren't big fans or, you know, have, have stuff to say about them, but I really enjoy them. They haven't, you know, brewed a beer that I've not enjoyed yet. I just quite enjoy their experimental drops I just, I just think they're, you know, a bit of a breath of fresh air. And we drove three and a half hours from our home in Essex to Newport in Wales. And we spent a few hours in the brewery drinking. Sadly, there were no brewery tours. And then we dropped our stuff off at our hotel and then walked round the corner into the Tiny Rebel Newport bar. So we spent probably about six hours drinking in Tiny Rebel based um, establishments which was divine and we had a really great time we actually took two of our neighbours with us and they really enjoyed it they are both new to beers and since lockdown we've introduced them into the beer world and they're all really they're like really enjoying it too which is great and it gives us more people to drink with I guess Aside from taking a trip to Newport for Tiny Rebel, we do spend a lot of time in Shropshire and there are lots of incredible breweries that we've done brewery tours around, including Ludlow Brewery and the Three Tons Brewery, which is in Bishop's Castle. 
that's one of the oldest known breweries in the UK and it's still set up like a Victorian style brewery on three floors. So we find it really interesting, you know, going to craft beer um, breweries where everything's quite quirky, very shiny, and then going to more traditional breweries that in my head is how beer should be brewed. We've also done local tours of Brentwood Brewery. That's our most local brewery. So yeah, we we don't have to travel three and a half hours to into Wales to find a brewery that we like. We've got plenty on our doorstep that we've toured round. So I don't know if that counts as travelling, but we do have to drive about 25 minutes to get to Brentwood Brewery. And we always stay in, in Bishop's Castle and in Shropshire every year. And each time we go, we do find a different brewery to visit. So I don't know if that counts as traveling for beer as we stay in these places anyway, but they do happen to have absolutely banging breweries there, which we really enjoy touring. We love to see how people make their beer or how they brew their beer and just meeting the people behind the drinks that we drink. And obviously when we visit these breweries, we we buy beer on site. We've got growlers that we fill up. We buy bottles. We bring back gifts for friends. So we do really love supporting small local breweries. I do like Tiny Rebel. As well as being a brewery close to where my office is located, one of their beers, Stay Puffed, is regularly available in the cheap section of Curious Liquids, and I'll always grab it. It's a marshmallow porter, so it's a bit like drinking a s'more, with a weirdly similar texture too. So what have we learned this week? Beer seems to have begun in Germany, but quickly made its way around the world. There's many different types of beer available in several different ways, but all of them are basically hops, malted barley, yeast and water, except for the weird ones that contain fruit and peanut butter. There's no right or wrong way to serve or drink beer, nor a restriction on how little you have. And there's a large beer community out there to help you along your journey. But probably best not to walk into a bar in Belgium or Pilsen and ask if they've got Carling on tap. Well, that's about all for this episode. Join me next time for another adventure beyond the brewery. Until then, don't do what me and my friend once did at the Bristol Beer Festival and only drink beers above 6%, because that way a very short afternoon lies. And if you're feeling off colour, as we may have been afterwards, keep on getting better. Thank you for listening to this episode of Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, don't forget to leave a review on your podcast site of choice. Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure was written, presented, edited and produced in the Glasgow studio by the Barefoot Backpacker. The theme music is Walking Barefoot on Grass, bonus by Kai Engel, which is available via the Free Music Archive and used under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License. Previous episodes are available on your podcast service of choice and show notes are available on my website, barefoot-backpacker.com. If you want to contact me, tweet me at rtwbarefoot, email me at info at barefoot-backpacker.com or look for me on Instagram, Discord, YouTube or Facebook. Uh, Don't forget to sign up for my newsletter and if you really like what I do, you can slip me the cost of a beer through my Patreon in return for access to rare extra content. Until next time, have safe journeys. Bye for now. (laughs) 